Podcast Revolution Network presents. The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Fanoa. This week, I have two awesome interviews for you. First up is Audra Wilson, who is the executive director of the League for Women Voters, League of Women Voters in Illinois. Um, Audra and I have a really in-depth conversation about having civil discourse and separating the, comp- the, the concept of civil discourse and engaging in better communication around political and social issues from um, civility rhetoric. Uh, and I really do appreciate uh, Audra's analysis and nuanced conversation and look forward to having her back again. After Audra and I's conversation, I was then joined by Shannon Watts, founder of Moms the Man Action. She's also a board member with Emerge America. And Shannon and I really kind of get into just some of the advocacy and uh, formulation of Moms the Man Action, as well as just making the case for citizen lobbying and activism and and how we redefine winning. Um, Because uh, we might not always get the exact win that we want the way we want it and when we want it, but there are still, you know, goals and other benchmarks that happen along the way to that ultimate victory. So I really do appreciate Shannon taking the time to put what winning looks like in context, as well as charting the course for future advocacy and action. Check out both episodes, check out the link, check out both interviews, check the links um, because there's a massive day of action for gun gun violence next week, uh, June 7th, we're orange. And also check out the work that League of Women Voters is doing both in Illinois and across the country. All right, check the episode out. Like, share, subscribe. Peace. I get to talk to really cool people. This was actually an interview that I didn't know that I wanted, but now I'm super excited about it. Um, I get a chance to talk with... Um, you know, someone who is at the forefront of, like, civic engagement and organizing work in the state of Illinois in terms of electoral electoral educational space. Uh, today I am speaking with Audra Wilson, who is the new executive director of the League of Women Voters in Illinois. Audra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So Audra has a pretty impressive, well, not pretty, a really impressive background. I mean, <laughs> you've worked as a deputy press and policy director for uh, the campaign, the U.S. Senate campaign for Barack Obama. You've been adjunct professor and director of diversity education outreach at Northwestern University School of Law. Um, and you've been deputy chief of staff for Congresswoman Robin Kelly in the 2nd Congressional District of Illinois. And now you take on this amazing role you know, dealing with legislation and advocacy work in my former home state of Illinois. Um, can you just talk, talk to me a little bit about just what brought you to this point where you are right now as a leader with the League of Women Voters? Sure. Well, it's funny because my, my career is anything but linear. Um, but I always tell people that every experience I had, as, as disparate as they seem, they really were connected, and one had led to the next and had led to the next. And from each experience that I've had, I have, I've garnered very important skills and, um, just abilities that I've taken on to the next thing that I do. So I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my, my eclectic, <laughs> um, professional background. But the theme that does run through it all, though, is public interest, public service, and, and politics. Um, I can tell you that's a common theme. Um, and that's how I've gotten to the role that I have right now as a new executive director. I assumed the position as of October 1st of 2018. Uh, so it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Um, many people have heard about the League of Women Voters uh, because it is a, a national organization, but the flagship um, organization started here in Illinois um, because it was started nearly 100 years ago. Um, February 14th of 2020 will be the 100th year anniversary. So it is a flagship um, location and a league, and so I'm very proud to be at the helm of that and that they have entrusted me with this very great responsibility. 
wow, that's amazing. I didn't realize it had been, um, you know, chartered basically in Illinois. Well, not basically, but if the flagship chapter was in Illinois, I didn't even realize that. But Illinois does actually have a rich history in terms of, you know, its role in women's suffrage um, and, and just the political and, and advocacy advocacy sphere in general. So I totally can see that happening. So can you just talk to us? Because I am familiar with the league's work. I know quite a few people are. Um, some some folks may not know the League of Women Voters at one point in time actually uh, held, like we're, we're over the presidential debates. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit about the work that the league does and specifically thinking about Illinois and the work that the league has been involved in? So the League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan civic um, education organization, and its name obviously is inspired by its its origins, and that is coming directly, as you said, out of women's suffrage. The founder, Carrie Chapman Catt, was a pivotal um, figure in the passage of the 19th Amendment, um, and she was the one who had actually founded the organization. But notwithstanding the title, this is a civic organization for all citizens, and it, it is not exclusive to women, although we are certainly very female-centered and, and our, the vast majority of our membership is female, but we are open and inclusive. And what we are really trying to promote is the active and engaged citizenship, you know, citizenry. Uh, we really believe that education is the key to to um, having active and engaged citizens, and active and engaged citizens are critical to a democracy. That is why we are also nonpartisan, because it's not about um, your political ideology, but rather making sure that you have the right information and that you understand the importance of you exercising that right to vote and to be a part of that political process. So we work in two ways. One half of our work is what we call voter services. So from the candidate forums that we host to voter registration drives, to education about, you know, what does it mean to vote and how do we cast the ballot. We work at all levels of government, which is, makes us so unique because, for example, whether you're running for school board president, you're running for state senator or state representative, or you're running for United States Congress, uh, or you're running for governor of your state, the league is active and engaged in every single level of government because we think that participation is key no matter where you are and no matter who you are. The second half of what we do is what we call issues and advocacy. Though we are nonpartisan, we are still very political, and we certainly still do have opinions. But the difference, however, is that we are an organization that really does extensive research on the most salient, most pressing issues of the day. Um, we do our background, we do our research, and from there we will formulate a specific stance or an opinion um, that we will we could talk about. We put it on our website. You know, we will make public statements about that because sometimes people think, oh, well, you guys don't have stances on things. And I said, no, to the contrary, we certainly do. But they are stances that are well-researched and they are not um, decided by or governed by whatever the political climate is of the day, but rather what we deem as being most expedient for the citizenry at large. So those are the two halves of what we do. It is a volunteer-based organization. So we have over let's say, in Illinois, we have over 3,700 members, um, and every state has a, a certain amount of members as well, but we are proud of our, our getting close to 4,000 members. Um, and then we also have a very active um, board. We have a state board that are also members, and they're, they're diverse, and they work hard, and, and they support that organization. And then, of course, in Illinois, we are one of 13 states that actually has a central body or central office, because even though the, the league is a national organization and of which there is national membership, um, there are some states that are large enough and have a you know a large enough population that they will have um, an individual state board and uh, state staff, central staff, and that's one of 13, and that's that's what Illinois is. So that's how we operate in the state of Illinois, and then how we operate nationally. But many people who are listening now may have heard of the League of Women Voters. Um, if you are in your individual states, you, you, you've heard, heard about our candidate forums because we do host a lot of those. And again, they are nonpartisan. The purpose of that is to educate voters so they understand who it is um, that is asking for their vote. Yeah, we get to learn a little bit more about the candidates and, and their stances, their platforms. But we do not endorse. Um, because that's not the purpose of this. It's not about what we think about the candidates, but rather making sure that we provide a platform for people to be able to make a decision about 
uh, what candidate they'd like to support at any level of government. So we're a very, very unique organization in that sense, but we are also one that is so, uh, so committed to civic engagement and making and participatory, participation of the average American citizen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I really appreciate that, and, and just really driving home the necessity for these types of organizations, specifically the work that you all are doing, because there is so much highly polarized information, or there's no information, because especially when we talk about some of the more local level races in communities, um, particularly when you're looking at judicial elections, and sometimes you're looking at uh, folks running at, like, the, the county attorney or district attorney level, there's, like, virtually nothing available on, on people running, and sometimes even some city or county commissioners, you don't really have a good source of information. So, so it's definitely crucial to have an organization that, like yours that, one is providing opportunity space for people to get really reasonable, objective information, but also providing, like you said, civic education. I mean, yes, we all take a basic, we should all take some type of basic civics usually in our, what, fifth or eighth grade classes or both, but unfortunately, there's so much about the political process and about, you know, civic engagement, legislation, advocacy that the average person just does not no, not necessarily because, you know, people misunderstand us as people being disinterested, but oftentimes it's so, it's so comfort, it's so overwhelming, um, the process as a whole to even understand where to begin to get involved. So just thinking about all of your experience and now, you know, working with the League of Women Voters, what are some of the major, you know, areas that you have seen that are, that are really crucial and vital to making sure that we have people who are who are being educated more effectively about civic matters. So what you said, it's, it's a very interesting paradox. We are in a, a time and space where it's almost information overload. I'm a Gen Xer, Generation Y. So, you know, I've, one of those that, you know, when I was had Internet when we were younger, but it was not the same access to Internet and social media that we have right now. Um, and so it's interesting that we now are in this place where there is a ton of information and it can be very, very overwhelming because it's also a, a place and a space where people can um, tailor the information for their own purposes and their own needs. So when you're watching certain channels, uh, you know, certain, certain channels are skewed to a certain political ideology or affiliation or, you know, thought, thought process. And, um, and if you're only getting your your news and your information from those particular places, those sources of medium, then naturally what happens is that you're going to tend to think or look at things a certain way. So, you know, it can be very intimidating for an individual who's trying to figure out, I want to learn more about a candidate. I want to learn more about an issue. I want to be more involved and engaged, but there's just all this information that is out there. So one of the things that I'm so proud about us as an organization is that we really try to help you filter through all of that. Let's get down to the core of the things that you really need to know and to understand and to help sort of just pull people out of the shadows and, and encourage them not to be um, scared or intimidated by the, 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 the volume of information that's out there so that they can learn to sift through this information and figure out what do I need to, to know about a particular issue or a particular candidate for me to be able to make my decisions. But I would tell you, it is, it's, a, it's a scary time, not to mention the fact that for some people, they're intimidated by it, and others, quite frankly, are disgusted. They, are, they don't like the partisanship. They don't like the rancor. Um, it is not unique to one single party. I mean, it's very easy to say a certain party nowadays is the one that you know, is the most, let's say, um, has the most very uh, vitriolic rhetoric about you know, whatever the case may be, whether it's immigration or social policies or things like that. But the truth of the matter is there's a lot of that vitriol, there's a lot of that venom in a lot of our public discourse. What I'd like to say about the League, especially for Illinois, is I said that we, quite frankly, can be a great way to talk to people about what does it mean to have civil discourse. It almost seems kind of trite nowadays when you talk about civil discourse. People roll their eyes and say there is no such a thing. And I'm one to say, absolutely. I love the fact that I'm, I have a different opinion than a, a colleague or a peer. I, I, we are not a monolith, and that's one of the wonderful, unique things about our country, that we have different backgrounds and different perspectives that are inspired by our life experiences. All I say, though, is that we need to learn how to be able to have discussions 
and talk about our different perspectives and, our, and, and understand where each other is coming from in order for us to find that common ground. And that difference is not deviance. Difference is not a bad thing. But unfortunately, what's happened publicly now and in the last couple of years is that having a divergent perspective all of a sudden is seen as being a very bad thing. You're out of the mainstream. There's something wrong with you. Um, and people get attacked for that. And that's what they get really disgusted and sickened by. Like, forget it. I'm just not going to open my mouth or I don't even want to have to think about that because heaven forbid I have an idea that's a little bit different um, or a perspective that's different. And that's why I think as the League, we have the opportunity to really model what does it mean to have civil discourse? League members are not um, monoliths. We have Republicans. We have Democrats. We have independents. That's what we love about ourselves. The League sometimes is accused of being, oh, we, we think that you're a cover for a particular political party. And the truth of the matter is it really depends on the issue because you'll hear some of our stances and things and you might think, oh, well, that sounds a little bit more like you know, a particular party I've heard that says this. And we're like, no, it's about the issues for us. It's not about ideology. It's about what we think in our research it works for the particular populace, and that's what we support. But we encourage people to have different perspectives and opinions, and we want to model how we can have those sorts of discussions and get those opinions out there without beating each other up, without, you know, demonizing each other on social media, without name-calling, because that's proper civil discourse, and I think that is robust, and I think that is uniquely American. No, I definitely appreciate that framing, too, because I think that we really need to have a space like that, right, where we can have not just, because there are a lot of people who call for civil discourse on whatever affiliated side they're on, but do not actually model it or help nurture and support and engage in that discourse, right? Usually we hear that from folks when they're Walls are, their backs are against the wall and they're trying to defend a position or defend against being <laughs> called out for something, right? But exactly. what I'm hearing about the league and the way it works, and it, it is actually really refreshing to hear about the internal diversity and makeup of membership in terms of, you know, ideological perspectives, et cetera, and being able to work in a vein that is about issues and having good discussions because that is a huge problem. We become so hyperpolarized in some spaces we can't have good conversations. But we also aren't having there's a call to have conversation that's not even on no matter who's making it, in many instances the call to have a better discourse isn't happening in an honest discourse or honest space. And it sounds like, you know, the work that the league has been doing now for almost a hundred years has been to nurture and create those spaces where people can actually engage in that type of honest discourse about some of the issues that are pressing um, right now for everyday Americans. So in thinking about, you know, just, just this, this, this is a very interesting and almost, I guess, in some ways noble, you know, undertaking in a field that many consider to be, uh, you know, not just contentious, but, but, but at times problematic thinking about politics and, and advocacy as a whole. How do you stay grounded? Um, in, in, in the work in this way and, and, and keep pushing for civil discourse and with, with, and making sure it's being done honestly, engaged in good faith. Well, this goes back to something that you had, you had mentioned to me before about my background. And I said to you that though somewhat eclectic, every single thing that I done, I have done prior to this job has really kind of brought me to this place of being able to take the, the, the helm of this organization. In my previous work, my most immediate um, previous uh, job was working as um, a deputy chief of staff for a member of, of the United States House of Representatives. And I worked in a congressional district that I tell everyone it's like the cross-section of America. It's the second congressional district of Illinois that encompasses uh, a part of the city of Chicago, although it's in the southeast side of Chicago, which for anyone that knows Chicago or its geography, it just abuts um, Indiana. It's a part of the, the city that is predominantly of color, so black and brown. It's also a very industrial part of the city and a part of the city that people sometimes feel as though people forget about this part of the city because it's industrial, it has its separate challenges, um, but it's, it's a third of our district was that, a third was the suburbs, and a third of the district was a rural area. So in an 80 to 90 mile stretch, you can go from the third largest city of the country all the way to parts where I actually worked on in a community that had absolutely no internet 
whatsoever. And this is a, a reality that people are living because people think everyone's connected and, you know, we're all interconnected and it's easy for us to be able to, you know, to, to get information and do whatever we need to do. And yet within my own congressional district, we had places where people had to use their phones to be able to have hotspots, but it was very difficult to be able to get those hotspots um, working because it was so rural. And that's why I say it's like a cross-section of America because that's what you're dealing with. We were very presumptuous about, you know, the opportunities and the resources that everyone else must have. But working in a congressional district helped me understand that, wow, you know, we are – we're not quite as interconnected as we'd like to think. There are a lot of folks who are really struggling. There are a lot of folks who don't have access. There are a lot of folks who really, really are disengaged uh, in the political process, but quite frankly, they have the most to lose, and they're the ones who probably need to be engaged the most. And that has actually inspired me in my work with the League because I take that background that I had with working so closely with constituents of all walks and I use that as inspiration when I'm putting together forums, when I'm I'm thinking about programs that we can do as a league, when we're talking about the information that we're going to put out there. I always think in the context of who are the people who are the most likely to benefit from this, who are the people who need this information the most, and in what way can we get this information out to those individuals. The great thing about the league, though, is that it is a statewide organization, which means we have local chapters. And the local chapters can actually, they are the integral part of making sure that we get our information sent out, um, excuse me, our information sent out to the most rural communities, the most kind of communities that are the most off the grid. And they're able to make the um, the issues that are very localized, like they're able to bring those to the forefront. For example, I'm based in the city of Chicago. But I will talk to league members that are based further down in the state that can talk about issues that are very unique to specific parts of the state that are more regional or even more rural, that have different kinds of issues, um, that just like um, some some parts of our community are very focused on environmental issues because they're adjacent to rivers. Um, other parts of our community will have, you know, be concerned about other um, issues that are more pressing in that particular region. So the structure and the composition of our organization is as such that it reflects the needs of that particular community. So in addition to my big kind of grand overarching kind of themes and issues that I want to make sure that we impart to our members, our local chapters, which we call local leagues, are able to highlight those issues that are very unique to that particular part of the state. And that's, again, why we are such a uniquely positioned um, organization and an organization that can be as effective as and, and, and as impactful as we are at all different levels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really crucial, the, 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 the parallel you just drew in terms of not just, you, not just you know, it, it's definitely amazing and important that even though you are based in Chicago, which, as you know, is a huge urban hub, but at the same time, looking at how do you reach out and, and connect and get people looped into the information who may be in more rural parts of the state, but also even noting that even within the district and area you're a part of or have worked in, there are still some of those similar issues. A lot of us think of these things as being far removed or maybe only in certain isolated areas, but even thinking about, you know, someplace like Southeast Chicago, which if I'm envisioning the city properly, I know exactly where you're talking about, there are, like, large swaths of our communities across the country that are left out of these conversations because they don't have the technological access or because of other different barriers. And in and, and having an organization like the League that really seeks to make this accessible to everyone across the board is so crucial because so much of what is happening right now directly impacts people's lives, and they don't either have access to the information because of the technological issues or they don't have time to physically appear and be at meetings or, or various things. So so it is really, I think it, it's positive to know that, you know, as an organizational focus and purpose, making sure people are connected to information and have access to the resources to get the information is really important. Um, what are, what are just, just, just thinking about uh, the, the, the current landscape in terms of discourse and informing people on issues, just, what are some things that you think people can start doing? We have a lot of people talking about grassroots, 
you know, energy around different campaigns, et cetera. But, but thinking about something like civic engagement and the work that the league does, what are some things that you see that, 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 that volunteers, that people can get interested in or, or help to do to make sure that we are actually furthering this idea of having good civil discourse and informing people about issues and, and opportunities that really matter to their lives? You know, it's funny. I just had a um, – I gave a lecture to um, – um, a class of at the University of Chicago, they have a, a a laboratory school, the lab school, which is a a private school. Um, but I I was lecturing eighth graders. I, I lectured the entire eighth grade class about women's suffrage, um, and and just political participation. And I actually asked my eighth graders this question. I said, you know, even though obviously you're not old enough to vote as yet, you know how do you think you can be engaged and involved in the political process? And some people looked at me, or some of the, the, the kids looked at me kind of like, I have no idea, and, you know, my parents were the ones that do this. But some others really jumped in, and they seemed to understand, and they got how their voices were so important. So they talked about canvassing. They talked about volunteering on campaigns, from leafleting to, to canvassing to, you know, whatever it is. They talked about how, you know, they are learning how to how to speak to their, their lawmakers about issues that are most important to them. And I, I really appreciated how, these are 13-year-olds, but they, so many of them seem to understand and to get it. And and I love that sense that they had of just, like, they're, you know, they, they, they couldn't be, they weren't impeded by their age whatsoever. They, they thought big. And it's funny because when you speak to a lot of older people, sometimes they tend to be a little bit more, a little bit more cynical about, well, there's not much that I can do. And I wish they had heard these kids that were talking. So I'm going to tell you what the kids have basically said, and this is what people can do. Your voices are so, so crucial. And interestingly, the more local the election, quite frankly, I think the more impactful the voices are. Because these are individuals that you are you are voting for that are going to represent you at every level of government, and the most local level of government, the one that's kind of closest to the ground, is the one that's closest to you, and those tend to be the races that are the easiest to get involved with, or the candidates that is easier to to be able to reach out to and, and encourage. So I tell people, you know, I if you need a candidate, someone that's running for whether it's trustee or school board or your local mayor. Reach out and say, hey, you know, if you like what they have to say, I'd like to be able to help you in some way, shape, or form. Stuff envelopes, make phone calls, help you canvas, um, talk to my school, or bring you into other places. This is very simple things that you can do that I know a lot of um, campaigns really appreciate. The other thing that I tell people to do is also it's civic engagement. You mentioned earlier that unfortunately in this country, and it's a terrible, terrible thing, Civic engagement or civic education is is disappearing. I mean, I cannot tell you when I was at the um, working in for the House of Representatives, how many constituents would call for issues that had absolutely nothing to do with the federal government. And when I realized that these are individuals that did not understand the levels of government, did not understand that the United States representative had nothing to do with their water bill. So, or, you know, they, they just saw someone in a political you know, position of authority, and they did not make that distinction between levels of government. And, and I have to talk to these individuals and let them know that I, I wasn't trying to blow them off when I would redirect them to their more local officials. But what that really underscored was that there is a, a genuine lack of understanding of, of our units of government, our levels of government, how they really work. So some of the ways that people can be involved, we have a lot of retirees who are members of the league, and many of them are teachers. So one reason why education is so big as part of our mission is because they will go out now and they offer to be able to do some of this kind of specific education. They will go into schools and go into junior colleges and other settings. They do do forums out in public to really talk about certain aspects of local government that the average individual may not know. And so education is a huge part of it. So if you know anybody who has that sort of background, encourage them to say, hey, listen, have you ever thought of volunteering at your church, coming to a community center, and, and maybe hosting a, a forum or a workshop on something that's, you know, that, that you have 
you have some expertise and background in that's related to the political process and being more involved. That education is so, so important and is really very much appreciated. So there's just so many different ways that people can be involved, and you don't have to have fancy degrees. You don't have to have a specific kind of background. You just have to be someone who's passionate and someone you know has some good knowledge and is willing to share that and not afraid to go out there and ask, like, hey, do you need some help? And can I can I help you? And can I offer my services to you? From the mouths of babes, go canvas. Like, you you can tell when kids get activated by the people in their lives. Um, I was just thinking about uh, my own kids and, and their door knocking and my son the first time I took him canvassing and I was so I was so surprised at how willing he was. He was like, just, just, I'll just download the app myself and we'll split the block. And I was like, wow. But, but I think, you know, I think, I think it's so important that we help getting people understanding the possibilities. And you're absolutely right when we're talking about local elections. That is the most basic level and it is a direct touch. When we're talking about issues in our schools, we need to be looking at our school boards and the decisions that are being made. And depending upon how your school boards, I'm based in Atlanta and we have these go teams, which are, I mean, you know, some places have local school. I think in Chicago it's the local school councils. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and so you have, so you have your, 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 your school boards. You also need to know how your school boards are appointed or elected depending upon where you are. And I mean, there's just so many different, there's so much. There's just so much. And there really is an area for everyone depending upon your interest. And it's, it, it seems more mysterious and, and foreign to us only because we haven't actually immersed ourselves or been involved in those spaces. But I think what you're saying, and just using the example of, of, of the students, um, I, I am hopeful for this younger set that's coming behind us. Um, I'm like you, uh, grow, grew up with access to internet a smidge, but nothing, and it was dial-up and AOL, and you got kicked off if someone needed to use the phone, so nothing like what kids have to <laughs> access to today, but like, just their ability to understand and engage that they have a voice and that I can go show up at the city council meeting. Like, looking at the March for Our Lives kids, you know, their their willingness to go to speak to, you know, people in Congress, their willingness to show up at, at meetings and, and lead walkouts and do all these things. It's like we are seeing, you know, this younger generation create civic engagement um, out of a necessity for their voices to be heard. We just saw kids bleed a a walkout in terms of climate change issues, right? But but I'd love for the rest of us to kind of get some of that that feeling of possibility. And it just sounds like in spaces like the League of Women Voters, and, and particularly the way you're visioning and leading your space, that that possibility is, is, is available, you know, for all of us, excuse me, regardless of our education, socioeconomic status. I mean, because a lot of people have these perceived barriers to entering into civic conversations, into politics, into just being engaged and mobilized. And it just seems like the work you all do, you know, is to remove those barriers and just make it accessible for people. Well, can I just tell you that I think people who are who who are afraid to wade in this space sometimes worry that they don't possess enough knowledge, they may not have the requisite background, but yet I tell everybody, I'm like, listen, you have to understand what it means to be an advocate. You know, if it's an issue about which you feel very passionate, um, you feel very strong about it, you, uh, it's something that has impacted you, they sometimes make some of the best advocates of all. So you don't need to have, like I said, letters, certain letters behind your name. You don't have to have a specific kind of background. I try to get people to not disqualify themselves from being part of the process because they think that they don't have the credentials, they don't think that they have the pedigree to do this. I said, no, quite frankly, they tend to be the most authentic individuals who come out and, and the most passionate advocates and some of the best advocates. So participation is something that is ubiquitous, and I, I really want to stress that to listeners, to not disqualify yourself from conversations because you think maybe the way I talk or my background or whatever, people aren't going to listen to me. That's not true at all. Yeah, no, I think that's a really strong point as well. So any final closing thoughts as we as we say adieu for this conversation, but hopefully we'll be able to have many more. 
I hope so too. Well, you know, there's a lot of things changing in Illinois. Municipal elections. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm based in Chicago, and it will have its first African American female mayor ever. One way or so another, that's is, amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great things on the horizon. So I I hope this is the beginning of many conversations that we're able to have. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking time today to chat. I I am really I really am looking forward to having more follow up conversations about you know this this idea of nurturing civic discourse and what does it mean to invest and how we do it in a way that doesn't force people to compromise what they believe to be their passions and advocacy, but actually really does build better discourse and how we move forward on the issues mattering to our community. So thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it so much, and I would just encourage people to, to check out our website, whether it's Illinois or LWV.org, which is our, our national website, to learn more about the work of the League. Absolutely. And there is a link in the description of this episode as well to both the Illinois chapter and the Nationwide League website. So this is another episode of Way of Noah. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Like, share, subscribe, and definitely check out the work the League of Women Voters is doing. Peace. Be taking the time. No, thank you so much for, for inviting me and including me. And, you know, I've watched you on Twitter for a while, and your work is so fantastic. I'm, I'm in awe of all you do. Oh, I'm, like, humbled immensely because Moms and Man Action has been one of the most formidable uh, grassroots, you know, uh, uh, organizations, entities over the past several years. Can you just, I know you've done so many different interviews and talked about this. Can you just talk to us a little bit about, you know, you know, I, re- I remember when Sandy Hook happened. I think my mm-hmm. daughter was probably around 10 or 11 at the yep. time. Can you just talk to me a little bit about, like, kind of what, you know, moving from uh, being, like, reading, just reading your profile, like, being a stay-at-home mom, just moving from putting yourself out there to, to, mm-hmm. to, to now where you are today? Yeah, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom in Indiana in 2012. Before that, I had been in the corporate world for a decade or so. But at that point, I had kids from elementary school up through through college, and I just felt like I needed to to be home. Mm -hmm. And when Sandy Hook happened, I was obviously devastated like everyone in America, but I also felt such anger that – my kids weren't safe when I when they went to school, and you and I have kids the same age. But when I look back, I realized, you know, I was living in a bubble that I didn't realize 100 Americans are shot and killed every day. And so mm-hmm. often what gets our attention are the school shootings and the mass shootings. And we've stopped listening to the daily gun violence in city centers or in rural communities, whether it's homicides or suicides or unintentional shootings that are so preventable and so senseless and that are devastating entire communities and really tearing at the fabric of American life. And that has really become our mission as an organization over the last six years as we've learned so much about what causes gun violence and how it can be stopped. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, so, so in thinking about like this, you know, you, 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 I was reading that you had put up a post like many of us do on mm-hmm. social media. And this is a little bit before kind of this heightened digital activism moment we're in now, <laughs> you know, and, and you started connecting with other women. And, you, and your first thought was, I'll join some other organization or something that exists. But then something sparked and you, you, you started what is now, as we know yeah. it, Moms Demand Action. Like, how was it just putting yourself out there? And, and, and really starting to well, pull this together. You know how type A women are. Uh, they started yes. Googling me <laughs> and finding my email and my phone number. And so, you know, I never really thought of myself as being as, as putting myself out there. However, mm-hmm. it quickly became clear that I had. Um, and, and in addition to all the wonderful outreach I was receiving from women all over the country, um, in, in the most red rural places you can imagine. Uh, okay. In addition to all of that, there was on the other side sort of this underbelly of America that I did not know existed. And so the death threats, threats of sexual violence, that all immediately started as well. And 
the, the great thing about social media is that it serves as such a potent organizing tool. It helps you get your voice out there unfiltered. Um, on the other side, there are, were these gun extremists who did not want us to, to do what we've done. And I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and just. So I, I think you, you touched on a really interesting point that a lot of people don't think about, right? Like a lot of people tend to think about if there's areas that are really conservative or red because of the voting patterns, then mm-hmm. those people must be a particular way, right? And that you know, just hear as you're hearing from women in these areas, I mean, it reinforces what we know about people all over the country, that there are common issues that we're concerned about and are just looking for some way to to even learn what we can do because if we just see like what we see from the news or we see what we see from our elected officials sometimes, it, there doesn't seem like anything that can be done. But I mm-hmm. think through your work with Moms Demand Action and, and, and I was reading, you know, about like you being on the board of Emerge America, Emerge America. So like there are these other components to the, 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 the activism and outreach also looking yep. at helping people get out there and running for office. So can you talk a little bit about just, how has it been helping to organize and shifting, um, you know, not just legislative priorities, but helping to educate and inform people about this issue, you know, across different communities? Yeah, you know, I spend most of my time traveling across the country explaining to people that we're actually winning this fight on the ground. You know, so many are waiting for this cathartic moment in Congress that hasn't come. It will. But in the meantime, there are women, mostly women, but obviously we have mothers and others, (laughs) men too now, Mm -hmm. but wake up every single day, like myself, I'm a full-time volunteer, and work on this issue um, because we know that we can create laws in our state or we can, we have to show up to stop the bad laws that would pass without Mm -hmm. us. Um, and, And what I found so interesting is that women in red states were really hungry for finding like-minded people. They they felt so strongly about this issue. They had seen these horrific suicides and homicides and tragedies in their communities and weren't really sure what to do um, because sometimes this can be a polarizing topic to talk about. So what we mm-hmm. gave people the, the ability to do was to connect with one another. And one of my favorite examples of this is actually in Arkansas, um, they kept sending me to Little Rock to try to help organize volunteers out there. We really struggled because this is a tough issue in Arkansas, and mm-hmm. people had other priorities. Uh, and so we were always able to manage, you know, sort of dozens of people and get them involved. And then what happened was uh, that the gun lobby helped pass a guns on campus bill. And it passed very easily, and the governor stood next to the NRA's chief gun lobbyist talking about why he was going into law. And it even allowed guns inside Razorback Stadium, where alcohol is served. Mm. And women and moms were so outraged in the state of Arkansas that suddenly what we, we had, like, two local groups across the state became dozens. And they began fighting so hard on this issue. They became a political powerhouse. They carved out that allowance for Razorback Stadium. Um, And then they started running for office. So uh, a professor who was uh, in our organization is now uh, in the state house. And then another woman who was a retired nurse and a volunteer for Moms to in Action took on that actual lawmaker who put guns on campus forward and beat him by 12 points. And then they they took that newfound power, and this year, uh, stand your ground, we were almost certain it would pass, and they they beat it back. You know, there's this this Mm -hmm. great picture that to me is iconic now, where our volunteers lined the entire stairway to the Senate, and there's basically all these white men, white male lawmakers walking up to, to where they sit for the Senate, and our volunteers are saying, do not pass underground in the state. Do not do it. Mm. And it did not pass. We were talking about that here. Uh, there was an event. I'm, I'm here in Atlanta. So there was an event uh, for for uh, Congresswoman um, Lucy McBeth, and yeah. some of the moms from, from here in, in, in the metro area were present, and they were just talking about their experiences with lobby. With like, I think this is right after our lobby day here. 
And um, they so they were, you know, they were sharing with everyone about, like, their experiences and stuff. And, folks, we were joking about it, but I was at I was at Dallas Capitol one day, and I saw Bob show He's like, you know, you see the sharks show up. Like, you know, it's like, And I think, I think that is just, I mean, I know that it's not, you know, the absolute, like, automatic perfect thing, but there really is, like, having that coordination, having, you know, an army yeah. of volunteers who are willing to step up. And, 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 you know, people think that, oh, to volunteers, you have to have, you know, some perfect schedule. But I know, like, different people were talking about how, you know, they were thankful they had a flexible employer, so they were able to uh, work, you know, overtime one day to be able to leave early or take a longer lunch. Or, you know, the way people are really – I'm watching people really engage and yep. figure out, not that I can't do this because I'm so busy because I have to work, I have to live life, I have to do X, Y, and Z, but I have to figure out how to make this a part of my daily routine in my life. Like, what are some of, like, how are your, your volunteers? I know you guys have tons of volunteers all over the country and in varying capacities, but how are you seeing, yep. you know, people building this into basically a part of their lifestyle, it seems almost? It's such a great point because you don't have to do this like I do as a full-time volunteer, you can give us an hour or a couple hours uh, a week. Sometimes we refer to it as naptivism. We actually had a woman who made an entire video for us that showed how she was able to take action when her kids took naps. Um, mm. We have women who come to us after their full-time job is done at night, and they make calls from their home. We have something called mm. the Gun Sense Action Network, where people can call into all different states and let residents know about a ballot initiative or uh, where their candidates stand on certain issues or how they can come to an event and get involved. Um, and, and I think we've just built this amazing machinery on the ground. We have this chapter leadership, all volunteer run. People do everything from lead the chapter to entering data to uh, outreach to religious communities, etc. Mm -hmm. And then we have all the volunteers, and we just ask them to give us whatever time they can, and we promise, you know, that we'll make the most of it. And look, that's sort of the specialty of a, a woman and a mom, which is mm -hmm. how do we make the most use of our time? I refer to right. myself as a tasking mofo. Um, it, it, <laughs> it is. It is something that we become experts at, and no one ever leaves a mom's in action meeting without something they can do with the amount of time they have to do it in. That's great. I mean, that's also so rare. I think I think what it sounds like you're providing folks is not just a, a place or an opportunity to feel connected to others and to do something that's, you know, that's right. But if I'm going to give this time away from my family, right, especially if I'm working mm -hmm. full time or if I have kids or I'm taking care of, you know, you know, a, a small children, elderly parents, disabled family members, whatever the case may be in our individual circumstances, then I'm going to come away with actual action items. I'm not just going to a meeting to go to a meeting because, unfortunately, yeah. some of us all on this side of the aisle love to have meetings and meetings <laughs> and more meetings. But we don't always come out of those with, with, with real clear goals and action items. And, like, so can you just talk to me just a little bit, just, just like with some of the things that you all have built over those last few years, like, like, I appreciate what you were giving an example of Arkansas, like how it wasn't that you got a law, legislation passed, that you stopped something. Can you talk to me something just a little bit about the different levels of winning that you all have experienced and, mm -hmm. and, and what it takes to lead up to those, those victories? Well, the, the most important thing to keep in mind when you get involved in most kinds of activism, but I would say especially gun violence prevention given the gun lobby in this country, is that it is a marathon, not a sprint. This isn't going to happen mm -hmm. overnight. It took us 30 years to get here. It's going to take several um, election cycles to undo. Um, it's also a relay race, which means you're not going to get all this done yourself. You have to be willing to pass the baton when you're tired or you need self-care or you have other things in your life that become a priority. And so we've created the structure that gives our volunteers so much flexibility. Um, and and we also set expectations. You know, we're going to lose. We call it losing forward. We don't want to lose without having built up a stronger chapter or becoming more well-known in the state house or creating relationships that we can go back to and try to pass that same legislation. I mean, some of this work takes several years. Um, last night, 
or actually it was Friday night, I believe, we stopped um, Guns on Campus in Missouri for the third year oh. in a row. They're going to keep trying wow. to pass that bill. Uh, right. In Pennsylvania, it took us four years to pass a domestic gun violence bill. And so this is a mixture of defense and offense. And we know that every time we see a bill come up, um, if it's a good bill, it may take a while. If it's a bad bill, we're probably going to keep having to show up year after year and protect the gains that we've made. But it mm-hmm. is about setting expectations and celebrating those wins when we have them, no matter how small. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think also when we recognize and acknowledge, like, the, the small wins, it helps keep us sustained and moving forward. Yeah. So that it's like we're, we're, we're reaching towards this goal, but look at this great thing, you know, that we did right here, and it really is something to be proud of. I mean, that, that has to be good, you know, for keeping people's, particularly with the way we see the news, we see a shooting here, you know, whether it's a school, a synagogue, mm-hmm. a mosque, like wherever it's happening, a ball. I mean, because it's, it's, I was just talking with my kids, you know, like I don't really recall unless, I don't know if it's that we, we're more hyper aware now because of like social media and the way the news reports things or if it's just that it really is, we are seeing more than what we had seen, you know, 20 years ago, right? Like I think back to my first real, like I was coming out of high school when Columbine happened and that was like, it was like unheard of. It, was, it wasn't very common. And I think when I just even trying to talk to some of my friends to like really understand the world my kids are living in, our, you know, like we said, we have kids around the same age, but the world yeah. they're living in, there's something happening all the time. And actually my daughter and their friends, like they're just like, you know, what do we do? Because kids at school joke about things like this, right? Like so mm-hmm. and, and no one takes this seriously. We're scared all the time. We don't know what's going to happen. So it is, it is an amazing body of work you know, to know that there is this entire cadre across the country that are working on these issues because for so long, and, and, you know, at least in the last several years, we have seen the lobby, the gun lobby, move in a way that is not to actually protect. Because even, even, even if you are a gun owner, like the things that are being pushed, the things that the NRA is saying and doing, isn't even in, like, the best interest of an individual gun owner, right? Like, they, they are operating in some other space that mm-hmm. is not based in reality with the rest of us, it seems like. No, you're exactly right. And and, and shootings in public places are, are happening much more. Um, we have advanced medical technology, so not as many people, thankfully, are dying from gun violence. But mm-hmm. it is it, there's a reason why this generation is having active shooter drills. Uh, my daughter right. texted me today from the University of Denver, and, you know, a man was seen in the parking garage she was in with a gun, and there was a lockdown. And that's just become sort of a daily part of our lives. And what's, what the correlation with the gun lobby is, if you go back to 1999, you will see Wayne here, the gun lobby CEO, say that the organization supports a background check on every gun sale, and they do not support guns in schools. In, in any manner. And why mm-hmm. did they change? Why did their be, agenda become so radicalized? It's because they started selling more guns to fewer people. And those people are mm. aging out. The demographic is basically a white man over the age of 60. And so mm-hmm. what they realized was in order to continue to maintain the profit margins for gun manufacturers that they had enjoyed for so long, they had to broaden those demographics. They had to start inculcating a younger generation. They had to sell guns to women. And they had to make it seem like guns were everywhere in America and that you needed a gun at all times to protect yourself. And how do you do that? You pass laws that force guns onto college campuses. You pass laws that arm teachers. Um, you pass permitless carry. Uh, you put guns in daycares. You put guns in airports. And and that is all the reason for their strategy, and it's why they've changed so much in just the past 20 years as an organization mm. is because they have to do that in order to sell guns and maintain their profit margins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that is great context, and I appreciate you raising, like, how the lobby because it's 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 in all these other ways, right? Like these you're talking about to make it seem like it's a necessity to have a gun and for 
very few mm-hmm. have multiple guns to be able to continue to sell, sell them. How how has it been training and organizing city citizen lobbyists to combat that? Because it, it it seems daunting, right, when you have a big juggernaut like the NRA, which is which is undoing itself. It seems like um, yeah, it's been a very easy year for them. <laughs> but but. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like David and Goliath almost. Yeah. You know, it absolutely is. People. Mm-hmm. It, mm. it is, and you know, people talk ask me a lot about like, is this a polarizing issue? And when you look at the polling, about ninety percent of Americans support stronger gun laws. Eighty mm-hmm. percent of gun owners, only one in ten of whom belong to the NRA, and then even seventy four percent of NRA members support things like a background check on every gun sale. So. It isn't like uh, 50% of Americans versus 50% of Americans. It's more right. like 90% of America versus a few lawmakers who continue to be beholden to the gun lobby and gun lobbyists. And when we show up at state houses, it's not dozens or hundreds of Moms Demand Action volunteers versus tons of NRA members or even gun owners. It's us versus right. usually one or two gun lobbyists. Um, right. And, and so I, that is really – how I know we will win this fight because demographics are on our side, because Americans are on our side. It has just been about making this an issue that people go to the polls and vote on, especially women, because we're the majority of the voting public. And mm-hmm. last week, a CNN poll came out and said that um, the issue of gun safety was the number three issue for Democrats going into the 2020 election. It, it didn't even make like the top five or ten five or ten years ago. Um, so we are seeing our, our work on the ground translate to turnout at the polls. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that because, you know, when you were just talking about how when you show up at the Capitol, this is why it's so important to get people comfortable understanding why they need to hear from us. Um, not a gun-related issue, but, like, just here – when we were yep. having votes on um, our voting machines, and like you could see like the the the, the 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 frustration, or they were they were thinking like like you know you had members of of the house sitting there with emails in their hands, waving them <laughs> like you know five people were emailing me and, and having yeah. people in the hearing room. I mean, it is it really was, and it's I know it can be challenging for folks and for people who are listening, but with sustained pressure and presence. You have people rotate in and out. Um, some of the moms here were talking about how, you know, they're like, well, you can do shifts, you know. You can only come for an hour and maybe somebody else can come for another hour. But you figure out a way because otherwise it is, like you said, one or two lobbyists just, you know, buying lunches and whatever else they do and, and, and yeah. making people feel okay with ignoring us and our communities and our families and our children. I mean, like you said, some of the legislation that people are proposing let alone passing. Um, we have uh, a guns on campus bill here in Georgia. Like it's, it's, you can bring tech guns on college campuses here in Georgia. And I remember my sister, who's now a senior in college, she was just like, when it passed, like I remember her and her friends were livid. They're like, do you understand how dangerous it is for us to let these people mm-hmm. come on campus with guns? It's like, yes, yes, we do. Yeah. And we need to figure out a way to continue working on this. But what you also, the other thing I appreciated you pointing out is that it's not a polarizing issue. And I, I, I don't know your experience, but I find sometimes like the media and attempting to be fair and balanced actually feeds into rhetoric that's not actually mm-hmm. accurate. That we see it, we see gun violence and, you know, gun reform positioned as a polarizing wedge issue when in fact, like you were going mm-hmm. in statistics, and I know state by state will probably see similar trends, that it's actually something that people do believe in common sense reform, right? Like, yep. how do you how do you combat like these 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 skewed or false narratives that exist? There, it, it is really interesting. You know, I, there are many members of Congress who continue to stand with the NRA, who I know for a fact don't believe the rhetoric and and the lies. They simply mm. are doing it out of political expediency. And it will change mm-hmm. as the NRA becomes more and more toxic. Um, and we're seeing that, right? We have seen lawmakers come out and say, Lindsey Graham recently said the Second Amendment isn't a suicide pact. Senator Pat right. Toomey said that if, if we were able to vote on the background checks bill, um, that Lucy McBath, my 
former colleague at Momsen in Action, um, if they were able to vote on that, it would get 60 votes. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's, the, the congressional politics are different. I would tell you that in state houses, oftentimes these lawmakers actually believe it. Um, and that mm-hmm. is because, mm-hmm. and you know this, you spend a lot of time in your state house. These aren't rocket scientists. They're, the, they're 80% men, and many of them I would not try to get a cup of coffee, let alone make the laws that will protect my family and my community. And that's why we're also seeing so many of our volunteers run for office, Lucy McBath um, being one of them. Um, we had 40 volunteers run this last November, 17 mm-hmm. won, um, including nice. Christy, Christy Clark, who's now in the State House in North Carolina. And she, she ran because she thought her lawmakers actually wanted to hear from her. And when she showed up at the State House, she realized that wasn't true, that they didn't care. Mm. And I do think when women run and get elected and move from shaping policy to making it, that will also create that same shift that we're doing through grassroots activism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I I think that's great when we talk about why we should have people running, right? Because it also seems like that not only do you have strong people stepping up to run, but there's support for them to the extent possible because I know you know, organizational-wise, things get a little different in terms of the FEC and things of that nature. But people do know that they're coming from a community that uh, that supports them, that respects them, and will hold them accountable if need be because it can be difficult going into these spaces, into these halls of power um, yeah. alone in some instances, right? Like It's true. It's true. It's, it, you do need a support system, and I do. I, I think that's what Moms Demand Action serves as, right? You have this mm-hmm. badass army of women at your disposal to help you run and then to have your back when you get in office. Um, just this year, Movita Johnson-Harrell uh, ran for state representative. She's a Pennsylvania Moms Demand Action volunteer. She lives in Philadelphia. And both her, her father and her son were killed by gun violence. And she's the first Muslim ever elected to the state house there. And she was able to, um, I think, got, she got courage from all of the Moms Demand Action volunteers who had her back and have supported her. And, and this now is her, her primary focus uh, as a state mm-hmm. representative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Jess, I need to ask you, how do you manage it? Like, how do you with your cats <laughs> and, you know, keeping your – it's not just you because you have a family and stuff, too. Like, how do you keep going and managing and enduring through, mm. you know, all – because I, I know this month in particular there have been, you know, recent increased attacks with the NRA and stuff on you personally. Like, how do you manage and keep moving forward in spite of all of this? I get asked that a lot, um, and I, I actually wrote a book that's coming out May 28th. It's called Fight Like a Mother, and I, I talk a lot about this in that book because mm-hmm. it is so important to focus on self-care. It is so important to take breaks and to prioritize your family and your friends so that you can get up and do this work every day. I'm really inspired by the survivors I work with, you know, people who have had loved ones stolen from them by unintentional shootings or gun suicides or gun homicides and have turned that pain into action, uh, whether it is becoming a a volunteer and a spokesperson or running for office. Um, To me, that is incredibly heroic that you would want to save the lives of of perfect strangers or, or protect others from feeling the same pain that you have experienced. Um, and, and that's what keeps me motiv- motivated. And I, I also think that this will happen in my lifetime. Um, but in terms of the, the trolls, the NRA has spent, you know, the last week for, for reasons I'm not quite sure of. I think they want to distract from their own problems that they're having, um, all the investigations that are being done about their mismanagement and their misspending, and possibly even having uh, AG Tish James in New York uh, undo their their board uh, and their leadership, but they have been attacking me, and it resulted in death threats. Um, but even though there are times when I I might feel scared or intimidated, I just refuse to be silenced, and I try to harness that to give me that anger that started 
the organization in the first place. This this anger that this should not be gun lobbies should not be writing our nation's gun laws. Full stop. And that that we just can't rest until that's ended. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I definitely appreciate that, and and I'm sure I, I could. That's what I say. I was thinking. I was like, I could only imagine you probably do get asked that question a lot. But it, you know, from the outside, we tend to think it's like, oh my God, it's this remarkable, amazing, extraordinary thing that people are doing. But when you feel that you have a value, you know, proposition mm-hmm. at your core, and you are motivated, you know, to 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 demand action, to yeah. speak truth to power, to to make sure that we have the change not only that we need, but that we that we and our families deserve, it just keeps you going and moving. So I really do appreciate you for chatting with well, me. I really appreciate you. Work. You are amazing. <laughs> and I, it's an honor, oh. honestly, to talk to you. This is exciting. Mutual Admiration Society, and I cannot <laughs> wait to grab the book. We'll um, have to meet each other in Georgia. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, but, but it's just been it's it, it's been a wild ride. I know, especially with post election for everyone. But the one thing, even yeah. when people may feel like there is contentiousness or, or folks are not agreeing, but I do think that post twenty sixteen, despite all the madness that has occurred, I really do think that it's helped bring together some amazing people doing amazing work. And so I'm very happy to have connected with you. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. And and the only last thing I want to say is that June 7th is Wear Orange, which is National Gun Violence mm. Awareness Day. And yes. you can go to wearorange.org and learn more about it. But we're asking everyone to get involved where they live and certainly wear orange and share it on social media that day. Absolutely. Everyone hear that. And the information <laughs> is in the description of the episode if you missed that. But Wear Orange, June 7th. You know, we rise together. I mean, it has to be all of us. So thank you, Shannon. I appreciate you. Thank you so much.